there's a reason why uh, I began uh, that prayer this morning with that song. And the reason is this, when I was newly ordained and serving at a church in Houston, I also found out that I had uh, come from a long line of Jewish rabbis and cantors. And I began to explore kind of the heritage of my ancestry, the rootedness of my faith. And as I began to preach, the Lord put it on my heart to live out of that heritage and to begin my sermons with a song. Until one Sunday after worship, someone came up to me and told me that I should stop doing that (laughs) because I didn't have a good voice and that it wasn't really helpful. It was distracting. Um, that felt really bad. Because uh, any form of rejection feels bad. You know what that's like when you're trying to be who you are, when you take a risk, when you step out, when you become vulnerable, and instead of acceptance, you get criticized or condemned, you get rejected. I want to invite you this morning as we begin to think about a time in your life when you experienced rejection. Maybe it's something that you're going through right now. Perhaps it's a difficult relationship, a broken relationship with someone that you care about, someone who's hurt you, someone who's pushing you away, someone that you're out of relationship with. I want to invite you to, um, to think about that this morning um, as we open our hearts and minds to the presence of the Lord and who he is and what he is doing in our midst. Because when someone we deeply care about rejects us, we experience loss. Loss of connection, loss of belonging, loss of acceptance. And there's perhaps nothing that causes greater suffering and pain in our lives than loss of relationship. Being rejected is painful. It's painful because it's completely contrary to why we're created and how God intends us to experience life. God creates us for togetherness, for connection, for belonging, for acceptance. God creates us for the joy, the the jubilee of a deep, abiding, safe, loving, fulfilling relationship with him and with one another. Here's the problem. Sin is the rejection of togetherness. It's a severing, a devaluing of God's design, the disobedience of God's word that leads to disconnection of relationship and results in separation. Separation from God, separation from one another. 
and our lives that are intended to be filled with love and peace and dignity become broken with fear and anxiety and shame. And to make things worse, our sin is like a nasty virus. It's like a nasty virus where we cough and hack and snot and sneeze all over. It's gross and it's highly contagious. And as we breathe and project and spread this virus, we breathe and project and spread rejection on one another. We attack rather than connect. We condemn rather than forgive. We punish rather than reconcile. But not God. But not God. And so as we step in uh, to God's word this morning, I want us to step into the reality of rejection And yet juxtaposed against that reality is the goodness of the gospel. God does not attack. He does not condemn. He does not punish. This is not how God responds to our rejection. God does not treat us as our sins deserve. And there is perhaps no greater comfort than the surpassing Conference, comfort of the knowledge that the gospel stands as the unfaltering, unchangeable answer to rejection. God doesn't withhold or withdraw. He doesn't isolate himself or ostracize us. God pursues us and forgives us to reconcile us to him and to one another. Jesus redeems us from rejection. And he redeems us from rejection by taking rejection upon himself. He becomes rejected that we might not experience rejection any longer. To redeem is the opposite of rejection. And the good news held out in the goodness of the gospel is that in Christ we are seen for who we are and redeemed for who God created us to be. You know what that means? It means we are fundamentally loved and completely forgiven and totally accepted forever. In Christ, we are also commissioned to hold out that love and that forgiveness and that acceptance in Christ to one another. Here's the big idea of our gospel lesson this morning. It is so beautifully captured and summarized in this. Accept one another, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. 
one of the greatest ways that we can experience fullness of life. Glorifying God as those fully alive, as St. Irenaeus says. One of the greatest ways that we can praise and glorify God is to accept one another just as Christ accepted us. We open your Bible to Luke chapter 5. We're going to look at Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. In your blue Bibles, that's on page 861. 861, Luke 5, 27 through 32. Jesus has been in his hometown of Nazareth, and what's happened? He's just been rejected as a prophet without honor among his own people. And nevertheless, he continues to heal many, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, calling people to turn away from the world and to come to him to have fullness of life. Jesus is being the Messiah and he's fulfilling his mission. Let's look at verse 27. Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. You know what the good news of the goodness of the gospel is? Jesus doesn't overlook us. He sees us. He sees us. Levi is sitting at his tax booth. And it says that Jesus went out. Jesus went forth. Aslan is on the move. Jesus has come to seek and save the lost, and he goes after Levi. Levi's about to have the best day of his life. It didn't start off that way, but it's going to turn out that way. He's collecting taxes. Not cool. People hate him. They dread having to come to him. It's bad enough that he's a traitor working for the Roman government, they'd say. Unclean, they'd whisper, standing in line. Barred from the synagogue, they'd murmur. Even the Romans look down on him. How low and greedy do you have to be to betray your own people and for the worst and most despised job in all the empire? Then Jesus walks by. But when Jesus sees Levi, Jesus sees him differently. Jesus is filled with empathy and compassion. Jesus sees a man hurting on the inside, a man with dignity, looking for a place to belong, a man with a big heart, needing a second chance, a man with great potential, desperate for a greater cause. Jesus sees Levi 
And rather than look down upon him or pass by him, Jesus stops. And when Jesus stops and looks at Levi, he sees something very real and very close to Jesus' own heart. He sees a man who's despised and rejected. A man of sorrows, acquainted with great grief. As one from whom others hide their faces and do not care for at all. When Jesus looks at Levi, his heart is filled with empathy and compassion. This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus does. God promised through the prophet Isaiah that Jesus would be despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we're healed. We are all like sheep. We've all gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way and yet the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the heart of God. And so when Jesus, the Messiah, on mission, pursuing the lost and the least, when Jesus looks at Levi, get this, he sees the broken image of God he has come to redeem. Do you know what it feels like to be rejected? Can you get in touch with that feeling of being left out, abandoned, ostracized, shunned? Do you know the feeling of that shame that comes as a result of trying the best you can to be who you are and yet others not accepting you? Have you ever longed for a second chance? Do you in your heart know that desire for acceptance and belonging for a purpose that's greater than yourself? When you can get in touch with that very real feeling, let me ask you this question. When Jesus looks at you, what does he see? How do you think Jesus feels about you? Y'all, Jesus doesn't overlook you. He sees you. He sees you in all of your mess and all of your brokenness. And yet, he draws near to you because he sees you 
for who God created and redeemed you to be. He sees you as the one whom he loves and cares for deeply and comes to save and transform and redeem. Look at verses 27 and 28. As Jesus stops and stands in front of Levi, he says, follow me. And Levi responds. Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Here's the goodness of the gospel. Jesus doesn't abandon us. Jesus draws near to us and invites us into a relationship. Follow, he says. Follow is to to come behind one who proceeds. What Jesus is saying is um, similar to the game, follow the leader. Remember the game, follow the leader? When you uh, identify who the leader is, then what you do is you get behind them. They go first and you do whatever they do, right? So if they're walking like this, you walk like this. If they walk like this, they walk like this. You know, anything that they do, you do. Reminds me of that Monty Python skit, walk this way, you know? This is, this is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what it means to be a disciple. To follow Jesus is to become a lifelong learner who bonds with him by coming to him, by standing with him, and over time increasingly growing in imitating his character and his conduct and his commitments so that with Jesus, we become more like Jesus and we live as he lives. Jesus says, hey, Levi, come on, follow me. And Levi got up. The the, the heart of this word, the literal translation is Levi rose up as if rising from the dead, as if being reborn with a new start and a greater purpose. Levi rose up and he turned away from the world and his former life and he turned to Jesus. The old had gone and the new had come. He was a new creation, ready to live into who God created him to be. This is kind of odd. And it's odd because Levi was a really wealthy dude. There's no integrity in being a tax collector, but there's a lot of financial benefits and perks. Levi had a lot of money. And this is the emphasis of Luke's words, he left it all. How could a man give up so much to follow Jesus? 
Because money didn't bring him joy. Money didn't bring him peace. Money didn't satisfy his soul. Levi has tons of money in the bank. But there's an emptiness in his heart. He's spiritually and emotionally and relationally bankrupt. And then Jesus walked by. The Son of God the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us, walked by and said, come. Come into a relationship with me. Come and be with me and I'll make you a collector of people. It was such a powerful moment that Levi left it all behind, including his name. A new identity led to a new identity. It's such a transformational moment that with his new identity in Christ, he took on a new name and forsaking all else, he surrendered to the redeeming love of Jesus and became Matthew. Do you know the acceptance and the belonging that comes from surrendering to the redeeming love of Jesus. Y'all, this is at the core of our identity in Christ. And it's a question that's emphasized throughout the New Testament. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, the Lamb, without blemish or defect. You have been bought. Bought with the price of Jesus' blood. It costs us nothing. It cost the Father, His one and only Son. And when we were still sinners, Christ died for us to demonstrate the love and the acceptance and the belonging that God has towards us to invite us back into a right relationship with him and with one another. He gives up everything that we might have, everything that he holds out to us. He sheds his blood to get us out of the dead end, selfish life that we once lived. He is the lamb of God who takes away our sin the sacrificial Messiah whom God raises from the dead and glorifies at his right hand so that we have a hope and a future with God here and now and forever. Jesus hasn't abandoned you regardless of your situation and your circumstances, no matter how dark it is, how painful it is. Jesus doesn't give up on us. He pursues because he loves. And he invites us to come to him into a deeper relationship, into fellowship with God, into an inheritance that will never spoil or fade 
into an inheritance where all the resources of the heart of God are at our disposal. This is who God is. This is who he's called us to be. In what ways do you need to get up this morning? How do you need to rise up and receive the love of God in Christ? Look at verse 29. (laughs) This is where it gets fun. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and sinners came and ate. You know what the goodness of the gospel holds out to us? Joy, jubilate, the favor of the Lord. Redemption calls for celebration. When Levi is converted, he throws a party. Not just any party, a great banquet. You know the difference between a party and a banquet, right? It's a feast. And like all feasts, filled with laughter and merriment. It is an expression of something great that has happened. Levi is rejoicing. He's rejoicing in the love and acceptance of God and Christ. And this jubilee is so filling, so transforming, so healing, so life-giving that he wants all of his friends and colleagues to rejoice with him and to experience the same. What we see here is that following Jesus means more than wandering the countryside and countryside and showing up at random synagogues just to hear Jesus teach. Following Jesus means using all of our influence and all of our resources for Jesus and for his kingdom. So Levi gets up and leaves the tax table and Matthew invites his friends to come over to the dinner table. He's putting it all out there. Celebrating, rejoicing, collecting those in his sphere of influence to rejoice in the love and acceptance of God in Christ with him. See, following Jesus also means introducing people to Jesus. Matthew is so grateful for the honor of being seen and accepted that he desires to repay that honor. I'm imagining thinking to himself, what if everyone I know could meet Jesus and be seen by him and accepted by him too? So I'm thinking that he takes a moment and he prays, Father, who do I know that needs your love and your acceptance in Christ? And put those names on my heart. And I can imagine Matthew writing down those names and then praying for each one of his friends and colleagues and then inviting them over so that they too could see and hear and experience the goodness of the gospel 
He knows exactly what their souls need because he had been one of them. He had found mercy and he wants to extend that mercy to them. He had been graciously delivered out of darkness to light, out of rejection into acceptance, out of sin into forgiveness. And he wants all of his friends and colleagues to experience the same. Y'all, the love of God in Christ is for sharing. It's a deep-seated desire in every follower of Jesus. Having found life in Christ, we want to share the life of Christ with those around us. It's why out in the gathering hall on the table, we have those cards praying for our lost and disconnected family and friends. And what we encourage in our life groups, that together we would talk about the names that God puts on our heart of people who are disconnected from him and his, his church. And then together we would pray those names. And then once a quarter, we would throw a party. We call them Matthew parties for a reason where we can invite those people and have a big celebration so that our friends and family and our neighbors can experience the love and the acceptance and the belonging of God and Christ with us. And so the togetherness that we have received, we hold out that others might experience togetherness with God again. Redemption calls for celebration. Remember, the Messiah has a mission and he's commissioned us to participate in it. Everyone is welcome at the Messianic banquet. And the Messiah has put in our hands the invitations to pass out. Look at verse 30. But the Pharisees, shake your heads like this. Mm. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their religious sect complained bitterly to the disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? See, what we see here is self-righteousness leads to complaining and condemnation. In Jesus' day, eating with someone meant social acceptance of that person. Sharing a meal signified welcome and belonging and fellowship. Sharing a table meant sharing life. And in the Hebrew culture, table fellowship also symbolized fellowship before God together. So breaking bread together brought God's blessing to everyone who was present together. You see why this is so significant? Here at Matthew's house, the Pharisees refused to eat. They became bitter. They complained and condemned. Pharisees wouldn't eat with those who were defiled. They wouldn't even enter their homes because they believed that they would be defiled too. They believed that the unrighteousness, the brokenness, the mess of tax collectors and sinners was going to be contagious. And so they wouldn't have anything to do with it. They wouldn't draw near. They would keep away. They would shun and isolate and ostracize. And they expected Jesus as a rabbi to do the same. 
But Jesus turns this religious norm, this social norm, completely upside down. And by eating with the blind and the broken, the harassed and the helpless, the lost and the least, what Jesus is doing is embodying the very love and compassion of God for everyone. Seeing the dignity of everyone created in the image and likeness of God and drawing near to them. And what's even more irreverent from the Pharisees' point of view is that Jesus enjoys being with them. It makes him happy to be with those who he created in his image and likeness. Regardless of how messed up they became, Jesus is glad to be with them because he knows who he is, he knows why he came, and he knows what's about to happen in their life for the good. Y'all, the same is true for us. You realize that Jesus doesn't just love you, right? He really, really, really likes you. Jesus loves us and he likes us. And he's come to rescue us. He hasn't come to criticize us. He's come to forgive us. He hasn't come to condemn us. He's come to save us. He has come to die that we might have life. To rise that we might become the temples of his very presence. Those in whom he breathes the breath of life into once again. To return to the right hand of the Father. To intercede for our well-being as citizens of the forever community of the redeemed. That's who he is. That's what he's up to. That's who we are in him. Jesus enjoys you. He loves being a part of your life. And just as he has accepted you, you give him great praise when you accept one another. Look at verses 31 and 32. He says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Y'all, we are seen and redeemed in a posture of surrender. Surrender, that's the key. When you go to the doctor, you know you're sick and you know you need help. That's the kind of person Jesus is calling, the one who knows she's desperately sick with sin and doesn't have a cure for herself. All right, we, we get confused in our culture about this. Um, because we go to the doctor for checkups. It's so annoying. I did it two weeks ago. I had to go to the eye doctor, not because I needed to, but I had to go to the eye doctor because it was the only way that I was going to get a new prescription for my contacts. My eyesight hasn't changed in 20 years. I don't need to go through an exam. I don't need to wait an hour and a half before I'm seen just to go through the ritual of getting something that I already know I have. It's so annoying. Y'all, that is not the gospel. Don't understand the gospel that way. You know what the gospel is? The gospel is my eyeball is popping out of my head. It is barely hanging here and I'm blind and I cannot see. 
I am desperate for help. I do not have the ability to fix my eye, to give myself sight, to heal myself and restore myself to how God created me to be. I'm at the end of myself. I've got to have a doctor. I don't need a checkup. I need radical surgery. And that's why God says, I'm not just coming to update your heart. I'm not just coming to tweak your heart. I'm not just coming to give a slight improvement to your heart. I'm coming to take away your heart of stone and to give you a brand new heart. A heart of flesh, a heart that's alive, a heart that's receptive and responsive to the love of God. That's the promise that the Messiah fulfills. It's why Jesus comes after us. It's what he does for us. Jesus is saying there's one who's sick and there's a doctor. There's a contagious sinner and there's me, Jesus says. And I've come because you have the need and I've got the cure. I am the cure. And the more desperately you feel your need to be well, the more unreservedly you're going to put yourselves in my capable hands and all those who come to me, I will heal and redeem and restore to fullness of life. That's who he is. That's what he does. That's who we are. And so we see that Jesus is saying, I'm going to minister to you in your darkness, in your circumstance, in your brokenness, in your pain, in your rejection. Because you recognize the love and acceptance that I have come to bring you and your desperate need for it. That you can't get that anywhere else. There is no one else, there's no other thing in heaven and earth but me who can redeem you to who you were created to be. That's why every Sunday, not just once a month, that's why every Sunday we have prayer and healing teams back here. Because we're desperate. Because we're broken. Because we are all like sheep who have gone astray. But because there is one who is our healer, there is one who forgives, there is one who reconciles, there is one who draws near to us and brings the very presence of God to bear on whatever circumstance we're going through for the good. There is one who reaches out to us and grabs our hands and says, rise up. Rise up and live. And you know what? There are men and women and children all over this neighborhood. There are men and women and children and our families, in every sphere of influence that we walk through on a daily basis who are spiritually sick and dying for the need of a spiritual cure. And the gospel is the power of God for the salvation for anyone who believes. You know what that means? That means that we have in our own hands the very thing which can cure the sin-sick souls of all those around us. It's the medicine that makes the sinner whole. And with our experience of the remedy in Christ comes the confidence that we will hold that out and that it will work for others as well. Y'all, within our possession is the hope of the world, the hope of glory, the hope of restoration, 
with God and with one another. And with that comes a responsibility to make it available to everyone, everywhere, whenever we can. How does this work? How does this work in a very real and everyday way together in Christ? I've shared a little bit how this summer I've been doing a deep dive into my own brokenness and how my woundedness gets inflicted on others. You know, wounded people wound people. And if we avoid our wounding and we hold back from the healing that Christ desires and has the ability to give us, we just perpetuate our wounding in the lives of others. And I've had some real great help over the summer from friends who love me, from spiritual directors, from counselors. I've read a couple of really good books. I've shared with you Dangerous Calling by Paul Tripp. Uh, Sonship, that 16-week MP3 series and book that I've gone through. And in the midst of that, I have rediscovered the importance of surrender. That it's in acknowledging our brokenness that we can come to the one who heals us. It's in acknowledging our weakness that Christ demonstrates his strength and his power. It's in dying to self that we are raised to new life. One of the things that I've experienced um, this summer is that there are some people who don't know how to handle our brokenness. They don't know how to handle our woundedness. And it's not their fault, but they push away, they withdraw. They don't know what to do. And yet there are others who draw near, who carry the kindness and the compassion, the acceptance of the Lord Jesus. And one of those people in my life, one of the things that I have rediscovered is how much my wife loves me. How strong Christ is in her. How she sees me. And even in my brokenness and in my mess, she accepts me. She doesn't always accept my behavior but she sees me who Christ redeemed me to be and she draws near me and she loves me and she draws that out of me. And a couple weeks ago, several weeks ago, I was sharing my heart and she loved me enough not to withdraw, but to lean in. She said, Matt, are you aware that when you're not clear about a way forward, when you become overwhelmed and anxious, 
you become harsh. She spoke the truth in love. She was full of grace and kindness. And it created an environment for me to humble myself in a posture of surrender to the love of Christ through her. And so rather than getting defensive, rather than withdrawing, I got curious. You mean with you? Yeah. You mean with the kids? Yeah. You mean in ministry, like at work? And it's in moments like that where the Spirit of God breaks in, where the healing, transforming, raising up resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ comes to bear on our hearts and our pain and our woundedness and our circumstances. That's what it looks like to accept one another as Christ accepted us, not to walk by, not to ignore, not to withdraw, not to condemn or criticize or reject, but to hold, to see, not just the mess, but who God is redeeming us to be. Alleluia, alleluia, give thanks to the risen Lord. Alleluia, alleluia, give praise to the King. Amen.